0: To be with you guys as we continue our series, and uh, this series we've uh, kind of uh, put together uh, to move us towards the weekend that Dave was referring to—the set free weekend. I'll mention it one more time here as, as we close, but. Um, and, and part of uh, the reason we do this is because uh, one of our uh, core four here is to, to find freedom. Uh, and, and often in church circles and Christian circles, we, we talk about uh, salvation. Um, and we, we often just think about that as something that's going to happen to us at the end of our life. Uh, but the, the Bible talks about salvation as something that actually starts happening to us now. Uh, that Jesus is in the business of bringing his kingdom to earth. And part of that, that kingdom is us being being Set free and living the full lives that He's inviting us to live, uh, and along the way throughout our life, we uh, we get hung up on certain things, and we get stuck, and we get we get cut caught in uh, you know destructive behaviors or, or habits or default ways of, of thinking uh, that are contrary uh, to what God wants to do in us and through us. Uh, and he's given us a blueprint and a way uh, for us to follow in his footsteps and actually empower us uh, and change us from the inside out uh, to make a difference in the world and partner with him in what he wants wants to do. Uh, and and so that's kind of what's behind uh, the series "Break uh, Every Chain." Uh, and even in my own life, I've been a part of church circles my entire life. Uh, I grew up going to to church and have uh, uh, generational uh, faith, uh, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. Uh, but even for me, I was stuck on many things throughout the course of my life uh, and you know, frustrated. But why wasn't I a different person you know, at this point or at the next point, And why do I keep uh, encountering the same things over and over again? Uh, and uh, as I got older and I s- stopped just simply in- intellectually believing that Jesus is true, but practically uh, trying to follow him and be obedient to the things that he was doing uh, and, and participating uh, in practices that the church has being, been doing uh, since its inception uh, as, as we practice worship and forgiveness and confession and repentance and, and these things that, uh, that God's people have always done, uh, it's actually... Uh, designed to bring freedom and levity and life, uh, to us. Uh, and that's been my experience, uh, in the latter part of my life. Uh, so I encourage you to join us on this journey. Uh, and, uh, last week we talked about uh, some of the reasons that we get stuck and just to, as a quick recap uh, Jesus talks about how he came to set free prisoners and captives or prisoners and the oppressed uh, and again prisoners are people that are in prison or they're in chains or they're stuck because of sins that they've done or things that they've committed uh, and, and so many of us we, we make decisions over the course of our lives uh, that are sinful and I know we don't like the word sinful some of us because it's maybe be a not common word in our culture, but uh, but in the, the scriptures, the sin, sin is basically anything that breaks relationship. And what we refer to it as at Sun West as shalom, uh, God's design for us to live in shalom, right relationship with Him, with others, with ourselves, with the world. And when we make decisions that break those connections and those relationships, it actually creates fractions uh, that uh, impact our lives negatively uh and so we make these decisions all the time uh you know paul says that we've all sinned that we've all fallen short of god's glory god's standard of shalom god's standard of living in right relationship with him and others uh and as we do that uh, it does something to us as we make those decisions uh it, it affects us and so we get stuck because of things that we've done things that we've said things that i'm sure if you could go back and redo that you would want to do um and we find ourselves uh, maybe stuck in a certain place and not, not experiencing the freedom that Jesus talks about. Uh, and sometimes we get stuck because of things that have been done to us. We're, uh, we have been captives or we've been oppressed or there's a decision that somebody else has made in your life that has affected you. Then you didn't have a choice in that matter. But the choices of someone else impacted you. Uh, and so last week we basically just looked at this concept that we make decisions and then our decisions make us. The decisions that we make have a trajectory. Uh, and the reality is it's not just the decisions that we make that affect, that, that affect us, that make us, but it's the decisions that other people make for us that also affect us. And that can be a positive thing and that can be a negative thing. Uh, this uh, past weekend I had the opportunity uh, and privilege uh, of uh, participating and actually um, officiating uh, the funeral of my my grandma, uh, she passed away uh, last week suddenly, uh, and so I flew back to Manitoba this past weekend and was um, was able to uh, kind of run the funeral and, and honor her in that way. And it was a privilege for me able to for me to be able to do that. And uh, and I was reminded this weekend, and you know the. The timing is, I think, somewhat divine as I'm talking about the impact of other people's decisions and how that affects us, that I was reminded of that this weekend as we were gathering and sharing stories and remembering uh, my grandma and who she was, and uh, she played a significant uh, role in my life. Uh, and uh, I, one of my earliest memories, uh, like I said, I'd grown up going to church my whole life. We went to church as a family. And my grandparents went to church with us. Uh, and I've always had a hard time uh, paying attention. Uh, it was the same in school. It was the same in church. It didn't matter where it was. Uh, but focus, uh, I always struggled with. And so I would often bring Hot Wheels cars to the church. And I'd play with the, those Hot Wheels cars underneath the pews. And, uh, you know, it was great. Uh, My grandma didn't like that so much. She she thought I should be listening and uh, participating uh, in the church. And so what she did is she bribed me and uh, she said, if you can tell me what the pastor talked about uh, this morning, then I'll give you a dollar. Every time you can tell me what the pastor said, I'll give you a dollar. And so uh, I was going back through the photo album. She had kept these notes that I made as like a little kid of uh, taking sermon notes uh, that I would kind of give to her and tell her what... And here's what the pastor had said. Uh, and then uh, I started cashing in. And so my, my motives weren't altruistic. Um, uh, but she, you know, she had a conviction that uh, this needed to be a part of my life. Uh, and, uh, and that conviction was also shared with my great-grandma, who was her mom. Uh, and when my, that great-grandma actually lived to be the oldest lady in Canada at, some, at one point. She was 112. Uh, and I made the mistake when I was uh, younger when she asked me what do I want to do when I grew up and I forget how old it was was in elementary school and I was just trying to please her and great-grandma and I said you know I want to grow up to be a man that serves the Lord that's what I said (laughs) and so she prayed every day till the day she died that I would grow up to be a man that serves the Lord and uh, if I would have known then uh, the power of a Great grandma, and then my grandma continued uh, that uh, tradition and prayed for each of her grandkids uh, by name uh, every single day, and that's a little bit of uh, the heritage that I uh, I come from, and uh, and so she's always been a big supporter uh, of mine and and behind uh, what the Lord wants to do in this world, and uh, there was you know one other quick story there. Was, Which I was reminded of this weekend. Uh, So my younger brother, uh, he's an entrepreneur, he's had different businesses, and uh, there became a point as we got older that my grandma stopped giving us Christmas gifts, and so instead she would send us Christmas cards with money. And she sent my younger brother some money, and she said, um, or she sent my younger brother a card, and there was no money in it, and in the card she said, I'm sorry Mitch, uh, but I'm not giving you any money for Christmas. You own a business, you have money. Matt's a pastor and needs your money. And so um, I got double portion. Uh, Anyway, so, uh, but I want to talk a little bit, actually quite a bit this morning, on how the choices uh, of other people affect us, but also how our choices affect others. And one of the things that we did often at my grandma's house was we played cards. There was always games, uh, cards, dominoes, and I learned how to play dominoes at grandma's house. Uh, but most of my life, dominoes, I haven't actually played the actual game. You've, you, you've done this, right? You, dominoes are best for setting up, you know, something like this, right? Uh, how many of you guys have done this as kids? You probably don't even know how to play dominoes, but you just kind of set them up like this. Uh, and so I can remember being a young boy setting up dominoes, and you try and, you know, see how long you can make that train go and over obstacles and, uh, you know, up and down things, uh, and it's quite, it's quite fun. Uh, but the whole concept behind this and why it's, um, I don't know why people, right there, through generations have been um, impacted by this and continue to do this idea is, be, is this idea that there's one moment that has a cascading effect. And we even use that term, don't we? We say it's a domino effect. What are we referring to when we say that? We say, well, there's this moment that has a domino effect. Uh, A decision, something that's been done in the past or in a moment uh, that continues to have a, a force that goes beyond what just happened in that moment. And the scriptures talk about this, that there's domino effects, that the choices that we make have a domino effect. And these choices uh, can be positive or these choices can be negative. These choices can be uh, to honor God and these choices can be uh, to move away from God. Uh, But the choices that we make will have an impact on our lives and the lives of other people. The choices that my grandparents have made have had an impact on my life. My faith trajectory and my path in life, um, a major part of that has been the heritage that I come from, the influence of my grandparents, of my family. God talks about this to the, uh, to the Israelite people. He says, when he gives them the Ten Commandments, he says, for you shall not make for yourselves an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth Beneath or in the waters below, you shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. And so very early on in the scriptures, we see that God is telling his people, when you, when you sin and you move against me and you make decisions that impact relationships with me and with others, there is a consequence to that that impacts generations. But there's good news in it, as you can see, that the the power of blessing is more powerful than the power of curse, of sin. That the blessings that we give, the choices that we make that align with God, that honor Him actually have a generational impact as well. And it goes further than the impact of even our sin. And it's fascinating to me sometimes when the, the scriptures talk about things and these were ancient practices and these were written down thousands and thousands of years ago, um, only in the last 20 years uh, has there been scientific research and data that, that actually bears fruit and agrees with these uh, biblical concepts. Um, I've been, I was exposed to some reading over the last couple years, and I'm not a scientist, but uh, there's, there's, it's just a 20-year kind of journey. It's pretty recent, the study of epigenetics. And epi is the Greek word for on or around, and obviously you know the word genetics. And, and so this, the scientific study and this development is basically around how there's molecules that attach themselves to our genetic codes, our DNA. And these molecules um, actually shape our behavior. And these, uh, these, these things happen uh, throughout our choices and experience in our lives. And so if there's a traumatic experience, it actually shapes uh, and attaches itself to uh, your genetic code. Uh, and what's been fascinating over the last 20 years that they started to study this is that these genetic codes, or these, uh, not the genetic codes, these, uh, these molecules um, actually can be passed down from generation to generation. Uh, but they can also be wiped clean, and they can be uh, reformed depending on the decisions and the choices that the next generation makes. Uh, and so th- this is like unbiblical scientific data, but things that they've been looking. There's a whole bunch of trajectories and ideas and ripple effects of of, of what that what that can mean. Uh, but scientifically, in the last twenty years, the, the the science community has been basically looking at this idea and saying there is. There is an impact that is made through our experiences and our choices, and there's an impact even by choices that our uh, parents made and our grandparents made that also affect who we are in a very physical, genetic way. And there's often been a lot of conversation about nature or nurture and what makes us behave and act the way that we do. Is it something that we learned or is it something that we inherit? Uh, And even this study would, would say yes to both that there's things that we inherit, but there's also uh, the reality and the, the pliability of actually reforming and reshaping uh, how you behave and how uh, the decisions that you make uh, that change who you are. And so the Bible says that the, the decisions that we make, the destructive, sinful decisions that we make, don't just affect you. They have a domino effect but also the decisions to honor God and to live in a way that honors him also have a domino effect. And so we have a a hand to play in the legacy that we leave, uh, but we also have to recognize that uh, we are part of a certain legacy uh, that went before us, that shapes us, that shapes us maybe with blessing, but also might shape us with struggle and predispositions towards certain struggles and behaviors and addictions. And there's choices that were made for you that have shaped you. Now I want to spend our time this morning looking at, a, uh, at the story of David, uh, and actually David's generations, specifically David and Absalom. Uh, I've been spending my devotions in the book of 2 Samuel over the last month, uh, and this is a fascinating story. Uh, and it's an intense story, and it's a tragic story. It's actually the longest uh, narrative story in, in Scripture. And if you can follow the storyline, a lot of the things that, uh, that God was saying in principle are bearing out in the story of David, and we will see that they bear out in the story of our lives. And although David's story might be quite extreme, and so we might think, hey, that's not my story, uh, I would encourage you to look at the story like a mirror. Look at the, the principles and the effects of the decisions that were made that weren't made. How they affected David, how they affected his kids. And then look at how God kind of intervenes and acts in the story. And so um, David, when he was young, uh, was anointed and called out as a young boy among his brothers uh, to be a king. And so he waited uh, for years while Saul was king. Uh, and he never took, took that role uh, into his own hands, even though he had opportunity to step into what God was calling him to. He didn't. He waited for God to put him in a place of leadership and so he was faithful as a young boy to who God was. He was faithful to the scriptures. Uh, he was honoring of those who were in authority to him. Even when those authority figures misused their power, he still uh, walked with integrity and honor. Uh, as David grew up and he became king uh, and he became powerful, uh, he uh, made some good decisions and he made some poor decisions. Uh, and there's a, a particular part of his story that I'm sure he would love to rewrite if he could. Um, but he, uh, the story begins by saying uh, at the time of year when kings go off to war. And, uh, and right there we have a clue that David uh, chose to actually deny his role as king and to do something that he shouldn't do. And he, instead of working, he just kind of stayed home. Because it was easier. And so he just made that little decision to stay home. And as he stayed home, he's standing on his palace, and he looks out, and he sees uh, this uh, woman having a bath on the top of her house. And uh, her name was Bathsheba. And do you know the, the meaning of the name Bathsheba? She baths. Uh, it's, so Bathsheba, she's bathing on the top of her house, and, uh, and he sees her. He could not see her. He saw her. Um, but then he said, he got a servant and said, Go find out who that woman was, and I want to meet her. So he gets together with Bathsheba, uh, and he makes the decision to sleep with her. And he realizes that he's probably done something he shouldn't do, and he needs to now start to cover up his. His tracks and Bathsheba gets pregnant and uh, he's trying to he's freaking out and he he think and and Bathsheba's married to this guy named Uriah who's one of his a fighting men one of his soldiers and he tries to get Uriah to come home from war because he was at war doing what he should have done and uh, but David stayed home so he gets Uriah to come home uh, to try and sleep with his wife uh, to cover up what he's done and and then maybe Uriah will think that the kid is his and Uriah refuses to do that uh, and then. David's trying to figure out, well, what do I do? Uh, and so he makes uh, the decision uh, to, have Dave, or to have Uriah put in a position where he'll be killed on the battlefield. And so David uh, commits murder to cover his tracks. And David thinks that he's figured it out, that he's covered it. Uh, except uh, that God knows what he's done. And uh, so God uh, kind of appoints this prophet named Nathan to go to David and, and, and say, there's going to be consequences for the decisions that you made. There's actually a domino effect because of what you've done. And Nathan says, why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house. Therefore, because of what you've done. And I don't even read this as so much as, you know, God saying these are the consequences that uh, this is the punishment I'm giving you because of what you've done. It's, it's, this is the consequences of the choice that you've made. Because you have chosen to kill somebody by the sword. You know, as Jesus say? if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. These are the consequences of your actions. Because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, to be your own. This is what the Lord says, out of your household I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. David had multiple wives. This was normal at the time. Um, Before sister wives there was David. Uh, This is is the way that uh, particularly kings lived. They usually had multiple wives and concubines Um, and so he, he Uh, Nathan is saying, he's going to sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You you did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. So Nathan says, there's there's a domino effect to the the choices that you've made. And so the story goes on, and we we learn that David has uh, many kids, uh, but there's three kids of importance kind of in the... As the story unfolds here, uh, he had uh, Amnon and Tamar and Absalom. And Amnon uh, he had um, with, uh, with one of his wives. Uh, and then Tamar and Absalom were siblings of, uh, of a different wife. So they were half siblings, Amnon with Tamar, Tamar and Absalom. And Absalom and Tamar were, were sisters. Uh, and, uh, sorry, siblings. They were siblings. Uh, And uh, and so we have Tamar in the middle of this uh, this family. And we we see here in uh, in 2 Samuel 13, it says, In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with his half-sister Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. And so Amnon falls in love with her. And so he, he starts to move towards her and act in an inappropriate way uh, with her, and he wants to be with her. And so the story kind of unfolds in 2 Samuel. And, and, and again, this story is tragic, and it's, it's vivid. Uh, but uh, this is what he says. he says, or she says to him as, as he makes this kind of ploy to sleep with his half-sister. She says, no, my brother... Don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of the disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. But he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than her, he raped her. And so he made the decision to take what wasn't his which should cause us to ask the question, where did he learn that behavior from? His dad. Sleep with somebody that wasn't his wife, take something that wasn't yours. And it says after Amnon raped her that he hated her with intense hate, hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. And so in Amnon's shame, his love actually turns to hatred. My guess is it's a little bit of self-hatred that now he's projecting out, trying to figure out how to deal with what he's done. Uh, Her brother Absalom gets wind of this, and her brother Absalom said to her, has this Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet, for now, my sister, he is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. So Tamar goes to live with her brother Absalom Her pain becomes his pain. He longs for justice. And then David hears about this. It says, when David heard all of this, he was furious. But I'll have you note that this was the only action that the scriptures report David having in response to his son raping his half-sister, his daughter. He doesn't ever deal with it. He just freezes. He abdicates his responsibility as a father. Why does he do that? I don't know. Maybe because he feels shame because of the decisions that he's made, and how would he bring judgment on his own son when he slept with a woman himself and murdered a man? You know, I'm, I'm projecting, but, you know, what's happening here in the story? And so when David heard this, he was furious, and Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. So Absalom never said a word to Amnon. They lived in silence, family members, and the situation just kind of rumbled underneath the surface for two years. Not dealt with. And so now we have these characters, Amnon and Absalom, and two years go by in this domino effect. You can start to see it happening. Two years of stewing, two years of uh, Absalom playing the scenario over and over again in his head, maybe uh, talking uh, to Tamar, you know, what did he do to you? Fantasizing about how he's going to get justice, make his half-brother pay for what he did to his sister. Absalom creates the scenario After two years, after all the stewing, after all of his anger, he creates a scenario where he gets the brothers together and and convinces uh, his dad to let all the brothers kind of come out and help with the chores uh, that needed to be done. And he knew that Amnon was going to come out and be there. And when Amnon came out, uh, Absalom murdered his brother. And so it goes on, the domino effect. The text says that this was Absalom's express intention ever since the day Amnon raped his sister. And so for two years, in silence, he stewed over this. And we'll see as the story goes on, and we've already seen, but we'll continue to see that there's usually three responses to hardship, to pain, and to conflict, and to sin. And these are pretty universal responses that people either fight or they flight or they freeze. And so some points in the story, Absalom fights. Sometimes in the story, you'll see that he flees. Sometimes David flees. Sometimes they freeze. David, throughout the development of the story, is this absent father who is freezing, and he's not engaging in the story. For two years, Absalom froze and did nothing. These are human coping mechanisms when we don't know how to control a situation or what to do or how to make right what we've done wrong or how to deal with a wrong that's been done to us, many of us will fight, flight, freeze. But the problem is when we do that, when we neglect to actually deal with these things in a God-honoring way, that the domino effect continues to happen. So Absalom flees. He leaves the situation. He murders his brother. He leaves, runs away. And the scriptures tell us that he was gone for three years. He knows his sin. He knows what he's done. He knows the consequences of his sin. And so he hides. And hiding is not an uncommon response when we become aware of our own sin and the things that we've done. It happened in the garden with Adam and Eve, and it happens in the story here, and it happens in our lives. When we've done things that we know that we shouldn't have done, our response is to hide. And the problem when we hide is that it allows our sin to continue to have a domino effect in our lives and maybe the lives of others. And so Absalom goes into hiding for three years, and it it says that David, and this is part of the sad part of the story, that David longed to go to Absalom. He longed for it. And some of you who have... Kids, even when they've been at their worst, you know what that means, that you have this parental heart that longs for your kids, uh, even though they've done things that have hurt you or others. You hurt for them. You long for them. But again, even though David longs for his son, he freezes and does nothing as a father. For three years, sitting in his palace in Jerusalem, longing for a son, not doing anything. One of his right-hand men... I should drop one of these because he froze, right? He did nothing. Um, One of his uh, right-hand men, Joab, saw that he longed for his son. And so Joab arranges to try and figure out a way um, to act on David's behalf. And this is kind of his role kind of throughout his time as David's right-hand man, always acting on David's behalf, trying to take, often taking action into his own hands. And he knew David longed for Absalom. So Joab arranges for a woman uh, to actually go to the king and to convince him to bring Absalom back, and so the woman kind of fabricates the story, and she makes up the story and she said, "King, I have two sons, and one of my uh, sons killed the other son, and he fleed and, uh, and now everybody wants to kill the only son I have remaining, but he 's my only heir he 's the only member I have left of my family, and they can 't kill him with uh, the son, please allow or with the king, please allow my son to come back." Uh, and for the blood of his brother not to be avenged. And David said, may it be so. Your brother can come back and he can be embraced back into the family. And then uh, the woman says this. He, she twists the whole story. And she said, The woman said, why then have you devised a thing like this against the people of God? When the king says this, does he not convict himself? For the king has not brought back his banished son like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But that is not what the Lord desires. Rather, he desires ways so that the banished person does not remain banished from him. The woman is telling David that God does not want your story to be written this way. He wants to rewrite the story. That your son who's done something wrong, that's hiding, that's banished, that you long for him, and that longing is actually a reflection of God, the Father's heart for him, and you should bring him back. You should be reconciled. You should stop this domino effect in its tracks right now. And so David, with a level of conviction, agrees because of what Joab did and interceded to bring Absalom back. And so they brought Absalom back, uh, but here's the thing, he didn't fully embrace his son. Absalom comes back, and he's told that he's not allowed to see the king. And so the text tells us that Absalom spent two years in Jerusalem without seeing the face of the king, without seeing his dad. Three years hiding, and then another two years in the same city as his dad, but not seeing him. And in the course of that time, We learned that Absalom had three kids. And so David had grandkids over the course of those five years, and he never went to see his new grandkids. He brought Absalom back into the city, but he didn't embrace Absalom as as a son. And so you can imagine over the course of those two years, being in the city, being close to dad, but never being able to see dad, that starts to stew. And so Absalom has these kids, and the, uh, the text tells us that one of his daughters, Absalom's daughters, he names Tamar, the name of his sister. And I just think that's fascinating. It's the only, it's the only kid that they name actually in the scripture uh, of his daughters, uh, because the author wants us to see this connection, that the pain that Absalom was taking on, on behalf of his sister is actually now projected to his daughter, that somehow he's trying to redeem his daughter's story through his own kids, or his sister's story through his own kids. And that's usually what happens, right? The, the pain of one experience goes into the next generation. We're either trying to make right what was wronged, or trying to make up for what somebody else did, trying to have a better life or a different life for our kids. And so even in, in that way, there's a domino effect into the next generation. We see this even in the life of Absalom. Trying to have a better life and a better future for this Tamar than the one uh, than his sister Tamar. Um, And so David brings Absalom back. Absalom has these grandkids. Absalom can't see his dad's face. The grandkids never meet Grandpa. And so Absalom gets desperate. He wants to see his dad. He longs to see his dad. And David longs to see him. That's the irony and the tragedy of the whole story. But Absalom needs to go through Joab. And he can't get his own dad's attention. And and he wants to see his dad. And and Joab needs to give Absalom the ability to see his dad as David's right-hand man. Uh, But Joab won't even listen to Absalom. And Joab's requesting, can I talk to Joab? Can I talk to Joab? I want to see my dad. And he does this twice. And twice Joab refuses to go see Absalom. So what does Absalom do? Well, Absalom does what we all do when we don't get attention. He finds out a way to get attention. He sets Joab's field on fire. They were actually neighbors. He said, well, if I light his field on fire, then he's going to show up and he's going to listen to me. And so he did. He lit his field on fire. Joab comes running. And Absalom says, I need to see my dad. So fine, Joab arranges for David and uh, Absalom to meet up. And the text says that when they get together, it says David kissed Absalom, but this isn't like an embrace, this is a formality. Uh, this is not a warm greeting. We have the son that longs for his father and a father that longs for his son, but they even get face to face and their worlds apart because of the decisions that they've both made. And so Absalom being rejected, not receiving his father's love, and David, probably wanting to give love, but not feeling like he can give love because his son has done something so horrendous. How do I make this right? And so the world's apart, even though they have the same longings. Absalom starts to this conspiracy, and the text tells us that he goes on to the outside of the city gates where people are trying to get an audience with the king. They're trying to get David to listen to their cause, their injustices, but David isn't there to listen to the people. Does this sound familiar? Absalom's like, I know the feeling. I've felt that pain. And so he starts to listen to their stories. And he starts to plant these seeds, and he says, you know what? If there was a different king, uh, you know, maybe there would be a different king that would listen to you, that would sympathize with you, that would let you talk to him, that would act on your behalf and bring justice. Uh, He's like, that's not who this king is. And did David fail Absalom as a king, or did he fail him as a father? He failed him as a father. Uh, But Absalom was opportunistic, and he said, you know, David is now doing, my dad is now doing to these people what he did to me, and he's ignoring them and not dealing with reality. Uh, And so he starts to plant these seeds. And then this is what the text says. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice, and so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. This was his way of getting back at his dad. David finds out that all of Israel want to follow Absalom, that he's stolen their hearts, and so David does what? He flees. He runs away. He hides. And so we see this response again, ignoring reality, fleeing. And then Absalom gains this following, and David is afraid, and and it says when David is leaving the city and he's fleeing, it says that he's weeping. He's fleeing, but he's weeping. He has this longing for a different kind of life, uh, but he's living in the reality of what is. And then Absalom is figuring out a way to get back at his dad. He's taking over the kingdom. He's taking his people, and then he has this advisor who's who's bent on evil that tells Absalom uh, that, you know what you should do? You should sleep with all of your father's wives and concubines in broad daylight so everybody can see. That would be a way to get back at him. And then it says, So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and he slept with his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel, which again goes back to where? The consequences of the beginning of the domino effect that David, uh, the choice that David made when he slept with Bathsheba and killed Uriah. This is what the Lord says out of your household, I'm going to bring calamity on you, and describes exactly what was going to happen. And so this happens, and then there's a battle between David's men and Absalom's men, but David orders Joab and his men, don't kill Absalom, you know, he's my son, I don't want him dead. Um, But it says that Absalom's men and David's men men went to war and that there were 20,000 killed. The domino effect of our choices and our sins always have a greater impact than we think they do. You know, when David slept with Bathsheba, he didn't know that the end result of how this was all going to work out was going to be the cost of 20,000 lives. You know, when Absalom longed to be with his dad and took things into his own hand, Absalom didn't know that this was going to be the trajectory of his resentment and his unforgiveness. But 20,000 people that weren't named David and Absalom died that day because of the sins of Absalom and David. The casualties of our sin will always be greater than we think. And we live in a world and a culture that thinks I can live this way as long as it doesn't affect anybody else. But I'm sorry to tell you that the choices you make will always, always, always affect somebody else. There's no way to make choices that don't affect other people. Even Even the things that we decide in private, we think, well, this is just for me, whether they're good things or bad things. But the positive decisions we make, the negative decisions we make in private, eventually bear themselves out in other people's lives. And so the story goes on, and in the midst of this battle, where 20,000 other people die, Absalom's hair gets caught, uh, in a tree, and he was riding a horse, and he gets you know, pulled back from the horse because his hair gets tangled in the tree, and then Joab and his men come upon Absalom. And even though King David said, don't kill my son, Joab acted on the king's behalf and killed Absalom. And so David finds out that his son died in battle, and here's his response. Oh, my son Absalom, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you, oh Absalom, my son, my son This is such a tragic story, and I'm sorry to to be the bearer of such a heavy story this morning. Um, But when you pay attention to how it all plays out, um, who was the good guy who was the bad guy? I mean, Absalom often gets painted as this terrible figure when we think back at history, but you actually pay attention to, to how it developed. You know, he was fighting for justice for his sister. He was responding to an absent father. And I'm not saying what he did was right, but I'm saying what he did was understandable. That he's not as different from you and I as maybe we think that he is. And David kind of gets all this glory. You know, he's a man after God's own heart. You know, he wrote the Psalms, King David. Uh, you know, we love David, but when you actually look at his life, you see that there's some pretty terrible moments of decisions that he made and ways that he fathered and parented his own kids that were less than exceptional. And so why is David known as a man after God's own heart? It's not because of the choices that he made. It's not because he lived such a holy life. I think David is known as a man after God's own heart because even in the midst of his mistakes, what you start to witness in the life of David is a life of repentance and confession and humility. He comes face to face with his own sin over and over again. And then he actually deals with it before God, and sometimes there's been tragic consequences to those decisions that he's made and the choices that he's made that have affected other people, and he bears the weight of that responsibility. Absalom, on the other hand, doesn't get the same benefit of the doubt because the story ended tragically. But what we see in Absalom is this resolution to get back at David, this lack of forgiveness for his brother, this lack of forgiveness for his dad, this intention on getting justice, and he never gets to the point where he can forgive, and that lack of forgiveness ends up intoxicating his heart and affecting the lives of those around him to the point that many thousands of people end up paying for his lack of forgiveness. That's the difference between Absalom's legacy and David's legacy, It wasn't that David made better decisions. It's just that David, when he actually made the poor decisions, came back to a heart of repentance and confession. If you read his Psalms, his worship letters, his worship poetry to God, you'll see this contrite and broken heart. In fact, God used David mightily because David, we know that Jesus, the Messiah, was born in the lineage of David. Through what lineage? Through Solomon. And whose kid was Solomon? Well, that's the kid of Bathsheba and David. So even in the midst of this tragic story, where David takes a wife that wasn't his, where he kills U- Uriah, this, this girl's, uh, Bathsheba's husband, and then he has a, a baby with this woman who wasn't supposed to be his wife, who he took on his own, has a baby named Solomon who becomes the next king, and then out of that lineage comes the Messiah, Jesus, that God actually rewrote the story of David, That God's redemption story is more powerful than the choices that we make. And this is the good news. That God is in the business of rewriting stories. And as tragic as this story is, it wasn't the end of the story. And so David was both a captive and a prisoner. Absalom was both a captive and a prisoner. We have all been shaped by choices that we've made and that others have made. And none of us are one or the other. We're always a mix of both. And we see in the story that they're always a mix of both. We become a prisoner because of the choices we make, and we become captives because of the choices other people make. Uh, But God actually gives us a pathway forward to find freedom, not to get stuck in the story, but to rewrite a different story. And what is that pathway? Well, for the sins that we've committed, God invites us to a posture of repentance and confession because the domino effect can stop there. And he can create a new domino effect because of the choices and the blessings. And when you choose to live in a way that honors him, it will impact the generations and the people around you. If you've been hurt by others, how do you stop the domino effect? Well, you stop it by actually participating in forgiveness. And that doesn't mean what's done to you has, was right or was just, but it means that I'm not going to let the pain that was done to me continue to be spread through me. I'm not going to let it control my story. And I'm going to let God rewrite my story. And so as I receive forgiveness for the things that I've done, I actually move towards giving forgiveness to other people for the things that they've done against me. And this is what Jesus teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. And so I don't know your story. um, But I was reminded this past weekend that my life has been shaped... Uh, and I told the good sides. there's bad sides to my family story too I left those parts out uh, but my life has been shaped by decisions that people have made around me growing up and even these years that I had no control of and along the way there was decisions that I made that I've controlled but I looked at my grandma and I said there was decisions that she made when I was a little boy that impacted the trajectory of my life that blessings go on for a thousand generations and if we want God to rewrite our stories he can if, he, if we want him to rewrite our legacy he can And so I would encourage you to not let the domino effect of what's happened before you continue to those around you. That you would take authority in your own story because of what Jesus has done. And he says that we can actually rewrite the story, that the kingdom of heaven can come to earth, that he's making all things new, that we can participate in him and what he's doing. And we can start to tell a different kind of domino story where the kingdom of God spreads through us but it means that we must step into that gap where David and Absalom weren't willing to step and participate actively in the acts of confession, repentance, forgiveness, because we want desperately for God to rewrite a different kind of story in our lives. And I would encourage you, and this is uh, the last thing I'll say, um, I know we've been pushing towards a set free weekend, uh, but we're trying to move as a community towards taking these things seriously. Not just talking about them, but practicing them. And again, I would in, uh, invite you to be courageous, uh, to take authority in your own story, uh, to sign up and join us uh, next weekend as we gather here together, uh, and we invite God to write a different kind of story with our lives. So Jesus, we thank you that you're in the business of rewriting stories. We thank you for decisions that have made, been made in our past of people that have honored you, that have impacted us and set us up Uh, in a way and a trajectory towards you, Lord, but we recognize that there's people in our past that have made decisions that have hurt us. Lord, would you teach us to forgive? Lord, we recognize that there's decisions that we've made that are having a negative impact on our own families, our own friends, on our own kids, on our own spouses, and Lord, you don't want us to run and hide in shame. You don't want the story of Absalom and David to be our story, Lord, may we be courageous not to run and hide, not to fight, not to flee, not to freeze, but to bow, to humble ourselves before you, to receive the forgiveness that you have for us, and then allow that to spill out of us and create a kingdom of God domino effect in the world around us. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. I just invite you to take a deep breath <sighs> that was a really heavy story <laughs> um, but uh, there's good news and uh, and this last week i had a uh, you know I was walking and then I had a sharp pain in my heel and then i I, I had to limp to where I was going, and I couldn't figure out why there was such a sharp pain in my heel. And then, uh, you know, when I got to my destination, I took my shoe off, and, um, and I realized that there was, a, there was like a steel little nail thing that had embedded itself into the heel of my foot. Um, and, uh, and when you feel pain, uh, it forces you to respond, Right? Uh, and C.S. Lewis said that pain is God's megaphone, uh, that, uh, sometimes we have to be reminded of hard things and pain, uh, not because it's the end of the story, but precisely because it's not, uh, and we need to become aware of it so that we can respond and react and compensate because of what has happened. Uh, and so I tell this heavy story and hold it up as a mirror. Hopefully you can hold it up as a mirror to your own story. I can in mine, uh. Not so that we can focus on the pain, so that we can be reminded that our choices have consequences. And yes, there's a dark side to that story, but there's a beautiful side to that domino story that goes on for a thousand generations. And so let's make choices that will impact our loved ones, our kids and their kids and their kids, that will actually open their heart to the love of God. And may we be the beginning of rewriting that story for them. May we not let our sins or the sins of our fathers actually write their story. And so, Father, we thank you again that you rewrite stories. Uh, may your kingdom come on earth as in heaven, in our lives, in our stories, in our decisions. Lord, may you prevent our sins from negatively impacting those that we love. And would you empower us through our will to choose courageously to follow you, that our decisions might actually impact in a positive, domino way uh, those that we love and those that you love desperately to know you and to follow you and to love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Thank you for coming. Uh, Again, you can register for the Set Free Weekend online, um, on our app, or even at the Welcome Center. Uh, We'll see you on Friday, and next week uh, we'll conclude our Break Every Chain series on Sunday.